Michael McMullen, welcome once again to the World Snooker Tour podcast, where my guest this week is Merseyside's own Robbie Williams. Robbie, thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for having me on. You are from Wallasey, which is on Merseyside, a place which has got quite a good snooker tradition, that whole area. So what was the amateur scene like in the area you were growing up in? Um, as a junior, when I joined the the sort of the junior leagues, Saturday morning leagues, um, Alan Taylor was actually at the club when I first joined. So it was really only him who were, who were new of. And um, ever since then, we've became really good friends. And were there many other good players anywhere nearby? Not really. You'd have to go maybe Liverpool, maybe a little bit further. I know obviously Ricky Walden's from Chester, but I didn't really, he was a bit older than me, so I didn't really get to know him until I was on tour. Now, we talk about Merseyside and snooker. John Parrott is who we always think of, the 1991 world champion, but you were only four years old at the time. So, growing up, were you aware of the history that John Parrott had created on Merseyside? Um, yes. Uh, he was sort of coming to the end of his career as I, was, as I started watching. Um, I remember the first game I saw was uh, Stephen Hendry's, I think it was 96, where he beat Ebden. Mm. Um, that was the first match I watched. Um, so obviously Parrott was, was still about, he was still, I think, top 16 at that, that stage. Um, but as I say, he was coming to the end of his career, so he was he was sort of, you know, my, my idols were like Hendry because mm. he just won everything, so I just I just uh, love watching him play. 2012 then, you made it onto the professional circuit. How did you find it at first in terms of the standard and how you were able to deal with it? Um, difficult. I mean, from what I remember, uh, I think I won about 8,500 that year. But it was it was the old system, the old tiered draw system. Um, I think that was the final year they used it until they came in with the flat draws. So I think you had to win like two matches to win fifteen hundred pound, which now you think that's really really tough. Um, but I think the first match I played was was Tepchaya, which <laughs> which is even <laughs> even worse. Um, I just remember thinking, wow, this guy's amazing, and I'm gonna have to really step up my game if I'm gonna do anything. So were you surprised then by just how good the standard was that you were up against? Um, I suppose so. Um, you sort of think with the, that with that old system, you're going to be playing players on your level. But even then, I mean, Tep Chai was, was streets ahead of me. You know, he, he was just amazing. So um, I remember getting through a couple of rounds in, the, in sort of the early, early tournaments. But yeah, I found it really difficult at first. It was a great time, though, wasn't it, to be coming on to the tour because Barry Hearn had just taken over. There were all those PTC events. And guys who had turned pro a few years earlier found that they were going through the whole season hardly playing a match. But you had a chance to really get stuck in and get a lot of experience very quickly. Absolutely, yeah. I, thought, I felt sort of very lucky to be turning pro at the time I did. Um, I was 25, so relatively late compared to you know certain other players um, in my age group like Judd and so on. Um, but yeah, I think the second season is where I really sort of found my own and kicked on and really started to enjoy it and thought I could actually earn a living from this game. And quite early on in that second season, Robbie, you find yourself in a ranking event semi-final mm. at the Indian Open and so far away from home and getting to that late stage of a big event, it must have felt like a huge adventure. Oh yeah, it was amazing. I mean, before that, the tournament before that was actually another semi-final where I got the PTC. I think it was, um, could have been Raw, the Raw Open. It was one of the German PTCs anyway. And um, yeah, it was me, Ding and Maguire. And then the same three players got to the semis of the Indian. So it was like, oh, wow, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, I mean, with these guys, you know, it's, it kind of felt amazing. Um, but yeah, the Indian especially was was when I thought, you know what, I can, I can, I remember on the flight home, actually, I thought, right, I'm going to quit my job because I had a part-time job at the time. What were you doing? 
Um, it was a uniform shop, just in just in retail. Oh, right. um, yeah. It was only like a couple of days a week, mm. but um, that just allowed me then to sort of right fully focused on the snooker. And I thought, right, I'm going to buy a star table, do everything right, and yeah. So that was the moment where I thought, yeah, this is this is it. This is it for me now. You'd play Ding in the semi-finals there, and the Indian Open was a full ranking event, and he was winning them left, right, and centre at the time. He was just so hot around that time you played him in that semi. He was incredible. I think he won five tournaments that year, if I remember correctly. And yeah, I just remember play, playing in that that match, and I thought, wow, this guy is just incredible. He just wasn't missing, and I think I was quite lucky just to get one frame in that match. But yeah, overall, very pleased to to get as far as it did. And then the end of that season, you qualify for the Crucible for the first time. And what an incredible match it was against Fergal O'Brien to get there. What do you remember <laughs> about that? Um, well, yeah, um, that was probably the most memorable match of my career, that one. Um, I remember going 4-0 down early on. And for some reason, I've never done this before, but I checked my phone. I, like, I turned um, Facebook on, turned Twitter on, just, I think, just to take my mind off the match because I was, I was struggling a little bit. And I... Um, I checked my inbox and I got like a few abusive messages saying, oh, you're rubbish, you're no good, probably from gamblers and so on. And that just really annoyed me. And, it, you know, I just I just was fired up from that point on. Um, so I won the next two frames, came out, and I thought, right, I'm getting back into this now. And then Fergal goes and wins the next three, and it's like, oh, back to square one again. So, so you're 7-2 down now. 7-2 First down. First to 10. Yeah. Um, I sort of thought, well, I've got nothing to lose now. You know, I've done well just to get to this stage. Just give it your best. And then I've come out and I've somehow won, I think, six in a row to go eight, seven up. And then we've both sort of shared frames until the decider. Um, and then at nine all, I think I made a break and I was one shot away from, mm. from winning. Um, and it was the easiest shot ever. And I just, I just twitched. It was one of those. It was just, I potted the ball, but it was just a bad positional shot. And then he's got in and made a really good break and took it to a respotted black. Mm-hmm. And then it was just like, well, <laughs> nerves were going like crazy. It was, it was a mental time, yeah. So how did that go in the end? How did you get in and get the chance to pot the respot? Um, I think we both played a couple of safety shots. We both had maybe a couple of, couple of cracks at pots. And then he's just left me uh, a long distance black, quite close to the side cushion. And I just thought, I just have to go for this. This is my chance. And... Um, Thankfully, it went in, and it was just—it was just the best feeling ever. I couldn't quite believe what had happened. Really, there's just nothing like the tension of that final qualifying round. Now, Fergal knows that more than anyone. He's had so many adventures in it, including mm. that epic two-hour frame. And that is the thing, isn't it? That with any other tournament, if you're on the brink of qualifying, there's always another tournament. There's not another World Championship for another year. So when you find it all hinging on one ball at the end of an epic match like that, it mm. must just feel unreal. Yeah, I mean, I just really like Ponds Forge as a whole. Um, I just like the vibe of the place. I just, I just like going to Sheffield. So the whole thing, it just came together in the end. And um, yeah, I, just, I just felt really good being, being there and playing there. Um, but yeah, that match in particular, especially qualifying for the Crucible, there's just so much on it. And um, yeah, I just gave it my all. And it was just so, it was just the best feeling it was to get through, especially, you know, with it being only the second year of my career just felt like wow what's happening here you played Neil Robertson in the first round he won it very comfortably so was it a case that he was just too good or did you come away with regrets from that match um no he was too good I think I think I had an interview and he said he said he played amazing so if he says that then he obviously Mm. did he made four or five tons I think um I think I was lucky to get two frames in the end but um yeah he played incredible and um I just remember sitting in my seat there and thinking 
do you know what? I'm a bit out of my depth here. I, I could feel it. You know, it wasn't, it didn't feel comfortable at all. Um, but I'm still glad of the experience, you know, to get that so early on. It was a great feeling. And um, I look back on that with, with a lot of good memories. It started a run, Robbie, of qualifying for the Crucible three years in a row. And mm. each time you got a little closer to winning your first round match when you got there. Mm. Yeah, the, the second uh, time I was there, I played Stuart, and that was obviously the year he won. Stuart Bingham, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Stuart Bingham. And um, I felt I started off really well in that match. I felt comfortable and I felt right. I'm finally comfortable out on the big stage. And I've come out for the second session and I just I've played absolutely terrible and I couldn't couldn't quite believe what had happened really. But I guess that's maybe down to experience and you know, Stuart's been in that position many times and um in the end it was nice to see him go on and win it. And then you played Ricky Walden the next mm-hmm. year, got even closer to beating him and he was just in the, the form of his life actually around that time. He was mm-hmm. coming in on the back of a great run. Is that one that you feel you could have got over the line in? Yeah, possibly, yeah. But again, his experience probably showed in the end. Um, I actually came away from that match feeling terrible. You know, I'd, I'd lost 10-8 and I felt like I'd lost 10-2. I just, again, I just didn't perform well. And it's it just kind of got to me a little bit. And yeah, it was quite hard to take that one. So you look at all that, we talk about the semi-final at the Indian Open. As you say, you've done well in the PTCs and you got to the Crucible a few times. But 2016 remains the last time that you've made it to the Crucible. So Mm -hmm. how would you sum up the six and a half years of your career since those days? A little bit in the shadows. It would have been nice to have got there again. Um, That's something that I really want to do just to put things right, really, that I haven't played well there. And it would be nice to just go on that big stage and perform for people like I know I can. Um, yeah, as I say, a bit, I've become a bit of a journeyman in that sense, a um, bit up and down, but I still think I can take pride in the fact that I've stayed on tour for 10 years. Mm. Um, that's something that I can I can sort of be happy with and be content with, but obviously I still want to push on and, and try and win a tournament. And do you feel things did slow down a bit after all that progress of the early years? Did you find it harder and harder as time went on? A little bit, yeah. Certainly, even just for the world, the world qualifiers alone. Um, I think the Ricky match probably hurt me more than I thought at the time. And maybe getting back there, I just found it tougher because I kind of knew what was at stake, but also I was desperate to put things right. So that was kind of playing on my mind a little bit. And then obviously when it moved from Ponds Forge to the EIS, that lost a little bit of that, that vibe that I had with, with Ponds Forge. It sounds like it's become a big focus in your career, the Crucible and the World Championship and getting back there. Has it maybe almost become too big a thing in your head? Possibly, yeah, possibly. I sort of, I remember the early years when I was qualifying, it was kind of like an exciting time and Mm. just recently I've just felt like I've maybe had a bit more of a negative vibe around the tournament where I I have been, yeah, maybe just too desperate to get back there and try and put things right, like I say. Um, Because it was a disappointing thing to end it that way, really. Do you think it does all become more serious as you get older, Robbie? You talked about the adventure and how much fun it all was starting out. But as you get older and you feel time passing by, and of course you've got to make a living as well, does it become less fun and a bit more pressure? I think so, yeah. Um, you never really know when you're going to make it back again. You, you think, well, maybe that was the last time I'll make it. You don't know. Um, I sort of look at it and say, well, I've probably got, hopefully... 15 years let's say if I make it to 50 15 more years that's 15 more goes at trying to get there 
mm. you think I'd make it a few times. So I'm, you know, I'm trying to look at it more positively now than I was maybe before. And outside of the World Championship, what would you say has been your overall career in the 10 years now that you reached this year? How would you sum it up? Has it lived up to your expectations in terms of how well you've done? Um, I think so, yeah. I mean, I look back to maybe when I was a junior and I was um, being coached by a guy called Andreas Ahmed, mm. who was on tour at the time. And I used to print off all the rankings when it was when it was the open tour and people used to just obviously pay for the pro ticket. And there was maybe, I don't know, maybe 500 people on tour. And um, I used to look down the rankings and, and find Andreas's name. And he might have been like 350 in the world. I don't know. And I used to think, wow, that, that's amazing that my coach is 350th in the world. So if you look at that now to where I am, that's, I don't know where I am, maybe 50, 51 in the world now. Um, you've got to think, wow, that's actually really good. You know, I've qualified for the Crucible, been to semi-finals. You know, I think if you told that nine or ten-year-old lad what you've done up to this point, you know, I would have been amazed, really. So I think I've got a lot to be proud of in that sense. Um, but ultimately, I'd love to win a tournament. That That's the one thing where I think I could retire happy if I do that. And when you look at the stories that have been over the last five or six years, Robbie, guys who are much older than you are now, you think of Rob Milkins only a few months ago, getting mm. that big breakthrough. You must feel there's a long way to go in this story and you still have plenty of time to achieve these things. Yeah, like you say, there's, there's plenty of guys up there who are older than me. And, you know, I look at Stuart Bingham, who, um, you know, he was still a, you know, a great player. He was still 20s and 30s in the world, but he didn't really take off. And then until, you know, he won, I think, the Australian Open was mm, that his first yeah. one. And then all of a sudden the titles came and, you know, world champion, Masters. And it's just, I'm not saying I'm as good as Stuart Bingham, but he'll certainly, it gives a lot of um, confidence to, to players maybe lower down or uh, a bit younger to, to actually, oh, you know what, you know, th there's a chance here for me. There's plenty of opportunities, plenty of tournaments. You know, if you keep working hard, maybe your time will come. I often talk to players who maybe haven't achieved as much as you might expect them to when you see how talented they are. Mm. And very often you find it's a lack of self-belief. They just don't quite have that bit of confidence. Is maybe that the case with you a bit? I think so, yeah. I think that's fair. Um, I think the British Open was probably a good, a good indicator of that where I felt brilliant all week, absolutely brilliant, flying, um, played so well. And then to get to the semis... It just felt different. Things started to change and it maybe got to me a little bit. I didn't feel intimidated as such, but it was, it just didn't feel the same. You know, it, it felt like all of a sudden it wasn't a snooker tournament. It was more of a sort of a TV show and I was, I was there for the TV and it, it wasn't a good feeling. And obviously the way I played, it was just terrible. So it's, that's pretty hard to take. Well, this was the semi-final of the British Open earlier yeah. this season. Mm. You played Ryan Day and you were in a good position and ended up losing 6-5. I have to say, Robbie, I don't think I've ever seen a player look so disappointed after losing a match as you were after that. Mm. And that must just be the thing. If you've gone out there and Ryan has just blown you away, OK, you can take that. But it mm. sounds like you feel you just didn't do yourself justice. And that's always the hardest thing to take, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that, I was heartbroken, to be honest. Not, not so much the fact that I lost, because I can take losing no problem. Um, it was more just the way I played and I got back to my hotel room and I was just in shock about how bad it was and um, especially the week I'd had because I just felt so good so confident going into that match and then as you say it, it all just changed and it, it just I couldn't quite believe what happened really how, how bad it was It sounds as though you felt 
that you didn't really belong there when you talk about it being a show that maybe you felt a bit out of place, which you shouldn't have done because, mm. you know, you'd earned your place in that semi-final. Was there maybe a bit of that going on? Um, I didn't feel out of place. I felt I deserved to be there. It was maybe just just the setup. It just I knew what to expect, but I, I can't I can't really describe it. I just I just felt different. It just didn't feel quite right. Um, but it is different, Robbie, isn't it? Because of most of your is, matches yeah. are out on table five or six or whatever. Yeah. You've got loads of tables going on. And when people talk about how different it is being in that one table setup, they're not kidding. I mean, it's a different world out there, isn't it? Oh, it's crazy. Sometimes you can go out there and just feel great. And other times you just think, what is this? It's just, it's just too different from the outside tables. And if you think about someone like Ronnie, who's probably played every single match on there for the best part of his career, you know, you play someone like him on there, it, it's... You feel like you're one nil down already. You feel like, oh, you know, but obviously that that's something you have to get over and, and put up with and and try and work on it. It's something that obviously I've had a problem with in the past and, and maybe continue to. So, yeah, it's it's not so much a worry, but it's just an annoyance that I still haven't quite performed on that stage. It was a strange sort of match in terms of the reactions because you look at Ryan who won the match and he mm. was damning about his own performance. Mm. He felt he had struggled as well. But of course he's used to being out there, isn't he? He's played in big finals and the one table situation is nothing new to him. Was that maybe what made the difference in the end that he was more accustomed to that setting? Possibly, yeah. I, I just felt that the whole match we just dragged each other down. Mm. And it was it was once you lose your concentration in that setting, it's so difficult to get it back. Um, really difficult um, and then obviously you start off negative thoughts you get down on yourself and it just builds and builds and builds and in the end I was just glad to get out of there really you know it, it didn't feel like a 6-5 it just felt like I'd been trounced and I just wanted to get out of there it, it was it was not a nice experience at all When you have feelings like that does that make you think that perhaps you could benefit from working with some sort of sports psychologist or an advisor in that sense. A lot of players are doing that nowadays. Yeah, yeah, I think that might be the way forward. Um, I've never really worked with anyone apart from coaches in the past. And I'm very lucky to work with, you know, I've worked with some great coaches, Frank Callan and Steve Prest and so on. Legends. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Um, so, yeah, very lucky in that sense. But, yeah, I think, I think um, mentally is probably... It's probably the thing which I struggle with most. So yeah, I think that I will have to look at someone, maybe just to just to even just to talk to, just to go through a few things and see what see what happens. Do you turn up to tournaments feeling well prepared? Are you someone who really puts in the hours? Yeah, I mean, I work very hard just to get to the level I'm at. I mean, mm. it's, it's hard sometimes seeing the top players just just play effortless. Someone I was watching the UK the other week, and you watch like Jack Lazowski, and it's just he's just what a player. I mean. Just plays, they just look so comfortable out there. And it's like Ronnie said in his interview after, he just he just felt comfortable from the word go. And, um, you know, I don't find it particularly easy out there. You know, I'm very much uh, an introvert, so mm. I do struggle in those situations. Um, but that's okay. I'm, you know, I'm happy with who I am. It's obviously something I've, I've got to work on. Let's do the quick fire round, Robbie. Mm. Favourite music? Um, I'm, I'm into sort of Alt-J or Tame Impala, so anything by them. Best holiday destination you've been to? Uh, probably Disney World, Florida. Fantastic. <laughs> Best movie you've ever seen? Um, I like anything from Hitchcock or Tarantino, so probably Kill Bill at the moment. The best you've ever played in a match? Oh, there's not been many. <laughs> oh, come on, Robbie. <laughs> uh, probably, probably the Fergal match to qualify, just, oh, yeah. just to come back from so far behind. Yeah. And the ideal way to spend a day off? 
Um, it's probably just relaxing at home, watching a film, just just ordering some food in. That'll do me. Let's talk about just the general business of being a professional snooker player. And one thing that always fascinates me about it is the general public look at things and say, oh, he's got to a semi-final, he's got to a quarter-final, and they just take it all for granted. But when you're out there playing those matches, as I say, often on outside tables and playing for so much and it's your livelihood, people just aren't aware of how hard it is to get even one win on the professional tour. Mm. Every match, you have to play so well, you have to work so hard, and... It's something that's very difficult to understand if you've never actually done it. It is, yeah. Um, I know I've probably come across quite quite negative on here, but um, you know I am quite a positive um, player in 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 a lot of respects because uh, you've got to be to win matches, you've got to be confident in your own abilities. Um, but it's 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 so tough. I mean, even this year, I think maybe I think the British Open is the only tournament I've qualified for, and I think and I, should, I, mean, I probably should have lost that as well. Ashley Hugel played brilliant against me. And he was a couple of balls from beating me. Only beat him on the black. Um, but the other matches, I mean, Jackson Page in the Northern Ireland Open, he was absolutely brilliant against me. I just, mm. I just couldn't do anything. Um, Stephen Hallworth beat him in the Europeans, and he's not even on tour. I mean, he's a great player. Um, so I just feel like every match now is just getting harder and harder and harder year on year. The standards just going up and up. So it's incredibly difficult. And it's not like other sports, is it? If you're a golfer and you turn up really well prepared, it's just you and your ball out there and mm. you can shoot the best score that is possible on the day. But as a professional snooker player, you can be brilliantly prepared, feel fantastic, and go out there and just not have any chance to make an impact on the match. It's so tough, that. That's it, yeah. You know, as you say, with, with golf, at least you've got your own ball, you've, you've got your, your destiny in your own hands, so to speak. But with snooker, if your opponent's on form, there's, there's absolutely nothing you can do, and that can be incredibly hard to take sometimes. You know, it can be a real sort of mental downer. It's interesting to hear you there talking about playing maybe up to the age of 50. And I think we're going to see that more and more, actually, with fewer young players coming through. I think that's going to be the sort of standard age, really, for mm. players to stay on tour until... So suppose I'm sitting here talking to you, Robbie, when you are 50 years of age. What would it take to happen in the meantime for you to be sitting here actually feeling pretty happy with what's gone on in your career? I've always said if I can win one ranking title when I retire... Um, That'll do me. That that'll that'll make me happy. Um, obviously, when you win one, you, you always think you can win more. But um, yeah, I think as long as I win one, um, I'd like to get back to the Crucible and win a match there. I think that that's quite important to me. Um, and the thing is, as we discussed earlier, pretty much three quarters of the players on tour maybe have it in them to mm. win a tournament. I think the ability's there. And yeah, you certainly fall well within that. Yeah. Well, you know, you look at someone like Jordan Brown. Um, He's given a lot of players confidence, I think, further down the rankings. You know, Fang Zheng Yi, I don't think he'd won hardly a match before he won that tournament that season. So um, I think it's in a lot of players, like you say. We can all we can all do it. It's just doing it on the day. And, you know, it's it certainly gives a lot of players hope, I think. What do you think it would take, Robbie, to have that week where you win a tournament? Is it just maybe a combination of everything? You need a little bit of good fortune along the way, but obviously you've also got to play well. Mm. What do you think are the, the big factors that might make the difference one week for you? Um, you definitely need luck, don't get me wrong. Um, I think experience is key. I think going back to the British Open, I maybe wasn't quite experienced enough to know what to do on that particular day. Um 
I felt like it was a long day waiting for my match and it's just little things like that which I could change for next time which would give me a bit more confidence and a bit more know-how about how to go about things so um, you know I've probably looked on that tournament a bit bit too negative I think um, you know on the week as a whole it was it was a very positive week and, and I know next time I'll get to the semi-finals I'm sure I'll, I'll do a lot better. As we said, you reached 10 years on tour this year, and that's an achievement in itself to stay on that long. Mm. Would you say overall, even aside from the matches and the results, that you've enjoyed the experience over that decade? Yeah, definitely, yeah. I mean, you know, for, for you to do your um, your favourite game as a job is, is an unbelievable thing. You know, very privileged, very lucky in that sense. Um, Travelling the world, I mean, you know, you experience so much. Um, so, yeah, I mean... You know, I, I couldn't ask for more, really. When you talk about sport on Merseyside, around the world, people think of football. Is it something you're into? Yeah, I'm a massive red. I, okay. I, try, I mean, I don't get to many games, but I'll, I'll follow them as, as best I can. And what's gone wrong this season? <laughs> uh, I don't know, you tell me. I think losing Mane was probably a big yeah. thing. He was such a good player for us, very underrated. Um, I think... Maybe with the takeover now, um, I mean, they're talking about a three billion takeover with like a, a Saudi Qatari group coming together. I'm not sure how the fans will take to that because we've always sort of been, we've tried to take the moral high ground with that, I think. But I think with City being so good, Newcastle coming to the fore, I think it might be the only way forward to actually to win anything now, to just, to just get as much money in as possible. I spoke to Ricky about this and he certainly agreed that back in that summer of 2020, which was such a tough time for everyone with COVID and mm. what was going on for Liverpool fans, just what an injection of joy it must have been in the middle of all that to end the 30-year wait. What do you remember about that night they won the Premier League? It was unbelievable. I mean, it wasn't as good with the crowd not being sure. there. It, you know, it was a bit of a bit of a damner, but, you know, 30 years without the title, is it was huge. I mean... You know, I supported them right through the the sort of mid nineties onwards, and we had some terrible teams during that time. So, for us to be playing the way we were for for a number of years um, is amazing. But I mean, it's it's difficult with City being the way they are. You know, to only win one title, I think we've been a bit unlucky with with you know the timing of of City's sort of growth. You've got a birthday coming up, 28th of December, you'll be 36. Now, these things don't bother you when you're older, but when you were a kid growing up, did you feel your birthday was always a little bit overshadowed by Christmas? Uh, a little bit, maybe, but I kind of liked it because it was, it was, you were off school anyway, so mm. I kind of liked that. Um, it kind of extended Christmas, so <laughs> I was quite happy, really. Mm, yeah, And I think I've got to be congratulated for getting through the end of the interview without making any reference to your name <laughs> and the fact that you share it with one of the most famous entertainers in yeah, Britain. True. You're probably a bit sick of that being brought up, though. Um, I used to be, but it, you know, it, it's the obvious thing to do, so I don't mind anymore. It's, it's fine. Okay, well, hopefully you'll be a superstar in your own right one of these days. It's been great talking to you, Robbie. Thanks Cheers, for your time. Thanks for, having me Thanks for joining us on the World Snooker Tour podcast. Cheers, thank you. And that's it for 2022. A sincere thanks to everyone who's listened throughout the year, and of course, a very happy Christmas. We'll be back on the 2nd of January, kicking off the new year with the 2015 world champion, Stuart Bingham. At 14 11, I remember literally in the shower, my wife's brushing her teeth and I've got out of the shower and I went I'm done she went what do you mean I went I'm done I said I just it's hit me like the nerves and everything I was four frames away from something I've always dreamed about and uh, it was it was within touching distance and it like you say the, the nerves everything took over so that's coming up next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast 
And don't forget our bonus content, The 147, rounding up the week's snooker headlines in 147 seconds, out every Tuesday and available to download at wst.tv. Until next time, thanks so much for listening and goodbye.